You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Welcome to Grace Community Church. <laughs> and if you're listening, we're laughing at you. No, I'm just kidding. No. <clears throat> just kidding. Um, Years ago, Kelly Wallace introduced me to a great little book on church history called Church History, A Crash Course for the Curious. If you're, listen, if you're interested in history, you're curious. Uh, if you're not curious, I pray that you will become curious. History is so important for us in our day when we think that these days since the internet came, on, came online was the only, we're the only generation that really matters that's been as advanced as we are. We're less advanced individually than we've ever been, probably, because we depend so much on information that somebody else can give us in in a moment. We think we're so smart and and we're so not. Anyway, that's my spiel for church history. Scott prayed about it. I preached about it. And I think it's time to quit, isn't it? Uh, I, I remember... Um, the, the author of this book, it's very conversational. It's just really an entertaining little book. It's not very long. But Christopher Catherwood, who was David, Mark Lord, David Mark, Martin Lloyd-Jones' grandson, um, had a, a, a lot of really great things to say. But one of the things that I especially remember, he said, Those believers across the pond, that would be us, he was in England, of course, and he said, those believers across the pond have the luxury of splitting up into denominations and pretty much staying there. And you don't really talk much to people outside of your denomination because it's so large you can afford to do that. Over here, there are so few of us that we have to band together and we gladly accept one another's differences. I thought, wow, that's so true of us. As evangelical Christians in America, we tend to emphasize the distinctive features of our particular brand of Christianity and life in Christ. If our numbers were greatly reduced, our perspective would, no doubt, change substantially about what is worth arguing for or against and what associations we should keep with believers who don't agree with us on every single point of doctrine. It's interesting. I said to Scott, pray for Fuqua Verena Baptist Church. And the first thing he gets up and says, Lord, all through history you've been working. You know what you're doing. The gospel moves west. And it does. The gospel has moved west. It's moving at a quicker pace than it has over the years. But it's going west and south of us. Moving away from this place. Um, And so... The ways that we isolate ourselves from everybody else and tend to think, well, we've got it all figured out. We don't have it all figured out. It's a lot we don't know. And history gives us perspective. How many times when you were younger were you convinced that you knew how parents ought to raise their children? (laughs) When a person should change jobs, all kinds of things. Well, I can tell you right now, if it were me, I'd be doing this. Then you got older, 
you know, and you got a little more perspective. And over time, you developed a lifestyle that looked remarkably similar to the ones you so roundly criticized earlier. Why? Perspective. The title of this week's message sounds like a polemical pamphlet that a Puritan pastor would publish. I actually wrote that. And then I read it this morning and I said, well, Peter Piper picked a, you know, pick a pickle peppers. <laughs> Polemic, a, 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 a polemical um, pamphlet was written back in the... Polemics is argument. It's arguing really against something as much as it is for something. Uh, but this title, God Holds the Nations Accountable for Their Sin, the titles used to be like that long. And I was telling Sean Cross about the title. He said, the only thing that would make it better is if you would say, in which God holds the nations accountable for their sin. If you've ever seen any of those, that's funny. If you haven't, you have no perspective, so let's move on. Um, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. I've already covered a lot. Eleven chapters, though. Can you imagine this? Eleven chapters in one day. Isaiah 13 through 23. When you read the judgment passages in Scripture where God talks about breaking the teeth of the wicked or making the children of, of a nation fatherless, how does it make you feel? Man, I'm going to be reading from Isaiah 13 in a few minutes, and I was reading those verses again this morning. A lot of good things happened this morning. And I said, oh, i got to take some of these out. Uh, on Mother's Day, this is not the day to read those verses. I, I, I looked to Allison, and she said, oh, yeah, take those out right now. And I said, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. Um, when, when, when you read these passages that seem to be so brutal in their approach, how does it make you feel? How do you feel when America goes to war? Do you think what goes on in other nations is any of our business? And if it is our business, why? Does Scripture address these kinds of issues? Well, not in a direct sense, but a careful examination of God's requirements for the nation should, at the very least, change our perspective about what God is doing in the world and our need to trust Him even when it doesn't make sense. It should change our perspective or help us to grow in our understanding of how God expects the nations to treat His people and also how God expects the nations to treat their own people and, and treat other nations. Nations are accountable to God in the same ways that individuals are. The home group leaders have been uh, reading Ray Ortland Jr.'s commentary on Isaiah this year. I usually try to stay away from this just so that they'll have fresh material, you know, for home group. And, 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 and there are so many wonderful things. Plus, if I ever look in there at, at that particular commentary, I'm going to use it because it's so fantastic. It's great stuff. This week, summarizing such a large passage... Uh, I was very blessed to get some direction and help from Ortland. And so he, he begins to wrestle with the interpretation and application for these chapters in Isaiah by saying this. Listen to this. Miroslav Wolf is a Croatian theologian who has wrestled with this problem, not in theory, 
But in the face of his nations being mauled by outlaw Serbian forces, he wrote about his struggles in the book, Exclusion and Embrace. Wolf is a favorite of David Calvert, Sean Cross, others of you, Sean's read Exclusion and Embrace. It's easy for us, this is Ortland, and I'll let you know when, when Wolf is speaking. It's easy for us, Wolf argues, sitting in our pleasant living rooms in the West to come up with high-minded theories of nonviolence. Our villages have not been burned. Our brothers have not had their throats slit. Our sisters have not been assaulted. His had. And he lumps the idea of a coercive God in with many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. And when he says liberal mind, he's not, he's not talking like liberal versus conservative. He's talking about democratic, the democratic mind. We have all kinds of luxuries in our land of freedom. We have time to be upset over the most ridiculous things when people are facing unspeakable, unimaginable horror all over the world. And it changes your perspective when you're in the middle of all of that. So Ortland goes on, but there is one thing that can save us from becoming vengeful people, striking back at those who have attacked us. It's a belief in divine vengeance. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. The blood of the innocent still cries out to God from the ground. Genesis 4, 10. The blood of Abel crying out against Cain. And when a confidence in God's fierce opposition to all human injustice enters our hearts, we have a reason to forsake our savage impulses and love our enemies. Close quote. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? I, didn't, I, I tried to cut some of it out. I, I couldn't. Again, we're covering a lot of ground today. So I think the best way to approach the text is to read a representative passage, which happens to come right at the very first in Isaiah 13. Verses 1 to 19, although for your sake and mine, I've cut out about four or five uh, verses. Since I will make a comment here and there, I'm going to ask you to remain seated, though we typically stand for the reading of Scripture. Plus the fact that this, this is in places so brutal that you may be glad you're sitting down. And how do we deal with these texts? That's kind of what I, I, I think the Lord wants us to pursue and to think about today. But before I read the text, I want us to spend a moment in prayer. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> because we have not um, experienced life as others who have so let much uh, less stability so much less food to eat, so much less of all the good things that we enjoy. Sometimes we come to passages like the ones um, that we are considering today and we don't understand. And in fact, we want to think, how could a 
a loving and compassionate God say and do such things? Lord, to our detriment sometimes, our advanced age in America with all its technology, with all of its, its social niceties sort of covers over the sins of people. And in a way, that's one of the things happening today. Sins are, are being revealed that have been hidden for a long time. And that's a good thing. When we read your word and we read your heart in these passages, may we not doubt you, but may we not only trust you, but understand the beautiful benefit of a God who will not overlook and tolerate sin and injustice and pain that people so sadistically inflict on others. Lord, we cannot begin to learn the, the lessons that are available in these chapters that have often caused us to scratch our heads and really be confused. But bring a little bit of understanding our way, would you please, Lord? On this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text, judgment is leveled against nine nations and the nation of Judah. Jerusalem specifically is, is called out in these prophetic messages. That's what an oracle is. The first oracle is against Babylon. An oracle is simply a prophetic message. Oftentimes, it's a message of judgment. In fact, maybe almost always it's a message of of judgment. And the first one is given about Babylon, who was not a world power when Isaiah wrote the prophecy, but Old Testament prophets spoke directly from God. God told them what to say, how it all worked. We, we don't know. I don't think Isaiah went into a trance, but the Lord burdened Isaiah and said, Thus, and he said, Thus says the Lord, and he was speaking directly from God. So it's no problem for a prophet to say what's going to happen 200 years from now. Babylon was going to take over about 100, 115, 20 years from the time that Isaiah wrote, but then they were going to go down another 70 years later. So he's almost 200 years out when he's talking about Babylon. Isaiah 13.1, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, on a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. Now, let me just explain something here. A few verses later, we're going to learn it's the Medes who are going to take down the Babylonians. Um, but I think it may be one of those verses that I, I, I took out. And it's not like the Medes went to church, prayed, put their armor on, and went and defeated Babylon. It's not that they consecrated themselves to God, but God consecrated them for his purposes. He set them apart and said, I'm going to use you to exercise judgment on Babylon. He sets people apart for his purposes. 
And sometimes when we look around and we say, that's horrible what these people have done. That's an awful thing. Sometimes God is doing things according to his purposes. How does it all work together? I told you recently. It's what I want to know when I get to heaven more than anything else. I want to know. I want to understand about Callie and Linda and, and all of those types of things. I want to understand about the stuff that Wolf talked about and how now everything is fantastic going forward all the way, all for all time. I want to know the design. This is the way God designs. Verse 4. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. I thought about this verse today. Verse 5. Today. They come from a distant land. We think of ourselves in this country. We're protected by water all around us. They can't really get to us. They can't. Wail, verse 6. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. And every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Cruel with wrath and fierce anger. To make the land a desolation. And to destroy its sinners from it. Is this a difficult verse for you? The day of the Lord comes. It's cruel. It's filled with wrath and fierce anger. Maybe if we lived in Croatia, not many years ago, with Miroslav Wolf and others, we wouldn't think so. We would say, God is just. I'm grateful. Verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. And the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world, verse 11, for its evil. And the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. And lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. This probably is the key verse in all of this section. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. God will never make peace with the proud and with the arrogant. If you are tempted toward pride and arrogance. God will never make peace with that. Ever. He will bring glory to His name in salvation through judgment though. Remember that? God's glory in salvation through judgment. 
will conclude our kingdoms. The splendor and the pomp of, uh, of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And interestingly enough, Babylon fell overnight. And one day, one night, one day, that was it. And they were settling in for a long siege. The Medes got in under the city gates through a, a, a waterway and, and, and defeated them when they thought they had years and years and years to go. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, it was over in a moment. These words were written during the time of kings Ahaz and Hezekiah. Isaiah 14, 28 uh, speaks of the year that Ahaz died, which was approximately 715 BC. Look, if, you, if this is your first time here, Uncle James, this is his first time here. We're in the middle of Isaiah. Um, and I haven't given a lot of, I, I can't, I'll be spending half the sermon every time given the context for where we've been to this point. But always you can go back and, and listen to the ones before. Ahaz um, was not a faithful guy. He was faithless. And we will not hear from faithless Ahaz again. Uh, later on in Isaiah 36 to 39, we're going to read about relatively good king Hezekiah, who could have been great king Hezekiah if he had trusted God with his whole heart. But <laughs> let's not point at Hezekiah. And when we have such a struggle with the very same thing, trusting God <clears throat> with all of our heart. We understand why God deals with his covenant people the way that he does. But why does God pronounce judgment on the nations? First, because the nations surrounding Jerusalem were a threat to the messianic line and the messianic kingdom that Isaiah had spoken of earlier. Satan would have loved to eliminate the royal line from which the Messiah would come. He tried over and over and over just to wipe it out. In the end, though, Jesus will reign over all the earth, as Isaiah 9, 6 so clearly stated. Not only does God win, so to speak, but he will establish a world that is characterized by unbroken peace and blessing. How will he do that? Through the judgment of all nations. In the near term, Isaiah 14, 5-7 tells us that when evil and violent nations are defeated by God, the rest of the world is at rest and full of joy. I, I thought about this morning. Just think, when, when Germany was defeated, how much joy there was. But that was only in the West. The people from the East were enslaved by Russia. So... Life is never going to be, you're never going to be able to figure it out. You're never going, we're never going to get away from despots and, 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 and totalitarian rule that is brutal in nature. And God's going to deal with all of that in his time. There are lots and lots of truths and principles in these chapters. But I want to focus on four truths beginning with this first one. God, one of the things that we see in here, God seeks out the humble, and he opposes the proud. In his judgment of the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, the charge is leveled against the king saying this, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. Does that remind you of anyone in scripture? A lot of people think that he's talking about Satan as well as the king 
of Babylon. You can read this text in home group and have a lively debate if you wish. Uh, the pride of the nations is often mentioned in these chapters. But in Isaiah 22, 12 to 13, God is speaking to his children in Jerusalem. And, and he says this. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. He's saying, I called you to repentance. Turn to me and I'll take care of you. He said it over and over in Isaiah. And behold, joy and gladness, instead of repentance, instead of sorrow over their sin, behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. God called the nation to repentance, but they ignored him and partied as if God did not exist and as if there is no meaning to this life. We all come to that place, don't we? Where we're, we're really questioning what is the benefit? What's the value of this life? Surely what is the value of doing it the way that God said to do it? To repent causes us to humble ourselves and to say, I've been wrong. And who wants to do that? We do in theory. But when it comes down to it, pretty hard. I can be all about it. Somebody say something, and all of a sudden, I mean, I'm just proud, and I, somebody accuses me of something or just says a little word, and I'm, I'm like, what? It's the way we're natured. When I arrived at this point in my sermon preparation, I was so convicted of my own pride that I decided not to go any further so we can go home now. <laughs> Just kidding about that, but I'm not kidding about the conviction. The next time, look, look at James 4, 6, and 7. He states it plainly. He gives more grace. This is what God expects of, expects of us. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Look, um, let's just get the ten strongest guys in the church. And if you think I'm talking about you, I am. I'm talking about you. You go back there by the door and someone says, I want you to resist Brad getting out of that door. I'll, don't let him get through. And I walk up and I say, hey, guys, what are you doing? They're like, we're, we're not letting you through. And I'm, I'm like, hey, I, I need to get through. And they say, no, we'll resist you. And I'm saying, look, I'm getting through that door one way or the other. I can say all I want. You think I'm getting through that door? No. Can you imagine God opposing you? When you're proud and you're arrogant and you don't want to listen, you don't want to repent. God is opposed to you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He delights in taking the lives of those who were humble and blessing them with His presence, even if the circumstances don't change like you want them to. So the next time you're angry with someone, check to see if pride is the cause. 
The next time you want to point to your accomplishments and your good qualities, remember, God opposes the proud. The next time you're tempted to sin, do not think that you are strong enough to resist the devil. Ask the Holy Spirit, help me in my weakness. Allow me to resist the devil and he will flee from you. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The second thing or the second truth from this text is that God is sovereign over all things and is working for his glory in his people's good. I, I, people have said for many, many years, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And that's true, and I like it, but it always had sort of the feel like not only God is good, life is good all the time. Life is not good all the time. It's not. It's painful. We've been through some serious pain this week. It's maybe a little better to say this. God is sovereign. God is good. I acknowledge the fact that my life does not have to be like it is. But God is sovereign. And God is good. It's already been stated, God was not about to allow His plans to be thwarted by ungodly people in ungodly nations. It may have looked like they were winning, but it wasn't going to happen. It, it, it was not always easy, though, if you're a Judean, to see God's plan at work. War after war steadily took its toll on the people of Judah. And it would soon have the feel of disaster as they were being carted off in chains to Babylon, the ones that were left, that is. A handful of people left in Jerusalem, and they were the poorest of the poor. They weren't going to mount any rebellion against Babylon. Maybe one of the verses that is taken more out of context more often than any other in Scripture is Jeremiah 9, 29, 11. I'm sorry. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. What does this verse say to you? What does this verse mean to you? See, that's the first mistake of Bible interpretation. What does this verse mean to you? That's not the first question. The first question is, what does this verse mean? Then we can think about what this means to us. What did this verse mean in the day it was written? Isaiah lived in the 700s B.C. Jeremiah lived a hundred years later and right Unto the, uh, unto the time when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. You want to be depressed? Read the book of Lamentations. It's like he's, it's an eyewitness account of Babylon destroying Jerusalem. And doing horrible things to the people. But Jeremiah was prophesying. It's too late. God is not going to rescue us. There's, there are too many sins. We need to just surrender. Well now that's traitor talk, right? That's what the people said. You're a traitor. And he was in and out of jail. Threatened, his life was threatened all the time. And during the time that the Babylonian captivity took place in three, over, uh, three stages over, uh, I think it's five, uh, ten years. I believe it's ten years. And some of the people had already been taken. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been taken in that first wave. 
And then more and more people were taken till finally that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is writing to the people who have been taken to Babylon. Now, Jeremiah's in Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. And somebody said, hey, there's this letter from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, and it's recorded in uh, uh, Jeremiah 25, you're going to be there. For a long time. 70 years this captivity. From the very first group that was taken away. 70 years. And they didn't want to hear that. They're like what? We're going back to Jerusalem. God's going to make all of this right. It's going to happen. Just you know it's going to happen. And you think about the times. When you just knew good things were going to come out of the bad. And they didn't come. Jeremiah then said. But this is from the Lord. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. There's a little disconnect, isn't there? Cognitive dissonance here. You're going to be there 70 years, but hey, I've got plans for a future and a hope. What does he mean? How can that be good? Well, two things I I can only think of. One involves the children. Maybe you're not coming back to Jerusalem, but I'm telling you, I'm not abandoning this city. I'm not abandoning my people. Your children will come back. But secondly, and more important, uh, God is saying, it's a lot longer view than just this life. There's a lot more to your existence than just this life. It's eternal in nature, and you are going to be rejoicing. My children, my people are going to be rejoicing through all eternity. Look, it's natural for us to take the short view of life, and it's easy to take the view that things are only good if they're good in this life and if they're good right now. It's true that most of us will live long enough to see some really bad circumstances in our lives turn good. And we get to see this beauty from ashes. But if life gets worse and worse until we die, we will awake in heaven like Callie did this past week. You know what was so great about Friday afternoon when we were talking about that? We believed it. We believed that Callie is way better off than we are. God makes it clear in these chapters that announce the judgment on the nations that He will be glorified. And when God is glorified, it is to the benefit of His people. As often as not, our troubles in this world are caused by others, which is another lesson we learn from these difficult chapters. Number three, it would be wise to leave vengeance or revenge in the Lord's hands where it belongs. It's interesting that God uses one nation to judge a sinful... uh, He uses a more sinful nation than this nation to judge it. That's what Habakkuk had such a problem with. How can you do that, God? And God explained himself, which essentially he just said, you're just going to have to trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm bigger than you are. It'll make sense to you one day. Just, Just trust me. Just believe me. But he uses Babylon to judge uh Judah, and then the Medes and the Persians come in and judge Babylon, and then the Romans, and it just keeps going. And, and we who have any sense of history whatsoever cannot think 
as Americans that our position as the most powerful and dominant nation on the earth will last indefinitely. Absolutely not. Pride, in fact, will likely bring us down sooner or later. God will have his way with our nation just as he does with all nations. Hopefully not for many, many years. But our trust needs to be in him, not in ourselves or in our military. Big, huge fan of our military. I am. I'm I'm basically conservative politically, but look, I, I, I understand a lot of the concerns on the other side. I do. But we cannot trust in ourselves. We can't trust in our might, our military, our technology, any of that. Even though God is speaking to the nations, as individuals, we would do well to learn to allow God to fight our battles for us. Romans 12, 9 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. More in home groups about this, a lot more. But I want to repeat something I mentioned just a few weeks ago. When someone has done us wrong, we cannot exact measured revenge, whatever that is. In other words, you know, Jay, you do me bad, I'm going to do you at least as bad or worse, you know. But I'm, whatever you do to me, I'm going to get you back. We can't, I can't do that to Jay without doing significant damage to my own soul. I think it's fair. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. See, what, that's what the law is all about. But really, do we want to be judged by the law? We can't. Stand up to the standards of the law. That's why God sent Jesus to die in our place. Because we deserve death. And our only hope is to acknowledge our sin and our pride before the Lord. As these nations have taught us about ourselves. And and to put our trust in Christ who died for us. God's wrath is controlled because he is holy and righteous. And he loves us so much that he sent Jesus. But if for those who refuse to turn, to repent and believe, God's wrath will righteously be carried out. You are not holy and righteous, as you have no doubt uh, discovered by this point. And so any revenge you take on another can quickly get out of hand. When you pay someone back, when you really get them, get them back, it's exhilarating for a moment maybe. But your joy is not going to last. Comments or actions of revenge are often cathartic in the moment. They feel really good in the moment. But especially if you belong to God, those feelings will not only not last, but they'll turn to bitterness or shame or depression. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing that God has done for us to say, Don't worry about what people are doing to you. I'm going to take care of it. Does that mean let injustice go? Absolutely not. But better to let somebody else take care of it for you than you try to exact revenge against people. Far better to let God righteously take care of any wrongs that have been committed against you. Last. Look to Jesus always, but particularly in uncertain times. 
If you're interested in politics at all, you have thoughts and opinions about our nation's foreign policy as well as domestic and social concerns. <clears throat> most of us think, especially as Christians, most of us think that our positions are moral. And the person sitting across the row from you probably thinks the exact opposite of you and thinks that your position, they're the moral ones and your positions are immoral. So which is it? I don't know, but I do know this. If the solution is political, it will fall short. There is no way to be fully consistent with God's heart and God's ways, whether you're politically minded or not. We're not going to be consistent with God. It's just not happening. Far better to search the scriptures every day, not to find support for our positions, but to know the heart and mind of the Lord. Isaiah 17, verses 7 and 8 say this, In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not look on what his own fingers have made. And then it goes on. Let's talk about the fact that we won't be looking to our idols. We'll be looking to Him. How much time do you spend in Scripture or in books that point you to the Bible? Which points you to Jesus? Conversely, how much time do you spend on social media or binge-watching your favorite shows? Look, there are other distractions, and you have to know what your distractions are. I know you do know that. May I encourage you to look to Jesus. I would like to tell you what our nation must do to avoid judgment. We are not, per se, as Americans, we're not the people of God. A lot of God's people are in this country. But we're not the people of God, so it's not as easy as saying, oh, we just have to do this, this, and this. Change this policy, go with that, and God will bless us. It's not that easy. But I would do far better than telling you how our nation can avoid wrath. I would do far better to tell you as believers to put your trust in the Messiah. The one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This past week, in preparation for Callie's service, we were, the kids were trying to decide, am I going to speak, am I not going to speak? And Chad decided for them. He said, yes, you're going to be up there anyway. And it was really, it was cute just watching them, you know, with their nervous. They wanted to show me what they'd written. And it was beautiful. Every single thing <clears throat> was beautiful that they had written. And I knew they were kind of nervous, and <clears throat> I was praying for them, trying to encourage them, saying, I'm going to be very, really close by, and if you stumble, I'll help. And, and uh, Bella, you know, Bella, she's the oldest. She's the one that's got the most to, to think about the nerves. And um, so I was so proud of you, Bella. I was so proud of everybody on Friday. But afterwards, I asked Bella, I said, were you nervous? And she said, not really. I looked at my dad, and he was smiling at me. And it was okay. When the times are the worst for you, 
and life makes no sense at all. Look to your Father. Look to your Savior. He'll be smiling at you. And it'll be okay. In unspeakable pain, it'll be okay. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, when we look at this world, when we look at our lives, when we just look at the way everything's going, we hurt and we, we're, we're so sad, we're confused, we're disappointed. It just doesn't make sense to us. And in spite of all of this wrath of God, the law in the Old Testament just prepares our hearts for the gospel of Jesus dying. And, 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 and when He, when you, Father, look at us, you see Jesus and you're pleased. May we not make the mistake. Your eyes are always on us. May we not make the mistake of, of turning our eyes all over the place. May we look to you and know that you are pleased. And may we, when we are done wrong as we all are, and some far worse than others, and I do not ever, ever want um, to diminish the pain of others and, and, and to deny it or, or to make it seem because I've not been through certain things, Lord. We all hurt. Nobody hurt like Jesus. When the Father turned His face away and He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He was bearing our sin. It's the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit that we ask to direct our hearts and to cause us to trust you Jesus' name. Amen. A little perspective. Uh, if you know history a little bit, church history. Every once in a while, the law would be lost. And if I've got a fear of anything I've realized in studying history, it's to lose this from easy access. when found again and it will always be found again until Jesus comes back until the word is is just it is around us it is everyday accessible when the law would come back the people wanted to hear it and they stood before it for days so here we go in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth but do receive this benediction, this well-speaking, this good word, this well-wish. Paul sees all of us as family, me and you, and we have the privilege of being family with one another. So as a brother, I give this wish to you. In thinking about the uh, amazing, mysterious plan of God, how the Gentiles 
were brought to Christ because of the seed protected through the chosen nation of Israel. He says, when I think of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him and the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.